0: Beloved, if you would be so kind, turn in God's holy word now to 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 40, the showdown, who is the God who answers with fire, it is on, yes. Uh, By way of context, last week we saw that Elijah, who had been in hiding for three years, had been called out to show himself to Ahab. For Yahweh is about to show all in Israel who is the God who brings rain. Ahab greets Elijah in verse 17 with these words, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? But Ahab is mistaken. It is not Elijah who is the troubler, but Ahab himself. For he has abandoned the commandments of God, and he has followed the gods of Baal. Elijah instructs Ahab in verse 19, Now assemble all of Israel at Mount Carmel, all the men, the women, the children, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, and let us meet at Carmel, which is, uh, by way of reminder, Baal's own backyard. So that sets up the context for us this morning as we look at verses 20 through 40. I don't know if I'm going to give enough time to verse 40, so I might save that for next week. This is a rather lengthy text, but that's the text there in verse 40 where Elijah, as the servant of the Lord in the Old Covenant, goes out and slays, literally, the enemies of God as the prophet who functions in that theocracy of the Old Covenant. Next week, I'll probably spend a little more time on that. But let's look now to chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. 40. I will read the entirety of the text. This is God's holy and infallible Word. Please give it every molecule of your being, all of your attention. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping? That is, Jumping hobbling between two different opinions. If the Lord Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him. A word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord Yahweh, the God, who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped or jumped or hobbled around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. He is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of, upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, that is the evening offering. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he, Elijah, repaired the altar of the Lord Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord Yahweh, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill out or fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their, back, turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people said it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Hishon and slaughtered them there. Holy is the word of the living God. It is truth. It is our portion. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your truth. We pray and ask now that The words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, and we pray this in the name of the Mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, the better Adam. Amen. Elijah's purpose at Carmel was clear, right out of the gate. His purpose was not to entertain, as entertaining as the text may be, and comical at points, but his purpose was to place a demand for the people. A decision was to be made by the people. Who will Israel serve? Will they serve Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel? The God who had brought them out of the house of bondage there in Egypt? Who had given them his law? Or will it be Baal? The decision was to be made, and this purpose Was seen there in verse 37 through Elijah's prayer. Notice the prayer in 37 Answer me, O Lord Yahweh, answer me. That this people, right, that, here's the purpose, that this people may know that you, O Lord Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. But before we look at the prayer, let's look at the purpose. In verses 21 to 25, the, the purpose of the showdown in verses 21 to 25. Beginning in verse 20, we're told that King Ahab summons all the people to Mount Carmel, Baal's backyard. And Elijah is there waiting, and you can only imagine the entourage as all of Israel gathers As King Ahab rolls up with his entourage, with his secret service, so to speak, and the who's who of Israel coming, and all the prophets of Baal, and this lone solitary figure, dressed as a wild man with a beard, standing there atop Mount Carmel, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, there to their right. All are filled with anticipation about what will happen And Elijah wastes no time in drawing near and addressing the people. In verse 21, how long will you go on limping? Did they have a physical problem? Was there something out of joint? Well, this word limping can also be translated hobbled. They're hobbling. They're limping. They're dancing. They're they're hesitating between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see, the days of Israel's indifference are coming to an end. The the trying to straddle the fence days are over. Elijah's message is plain and it's simple and unambiguous and clear. You cannot worship Yahweh and Baal at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. You see, this decision is not an academic nor theological matter or theoretical matter, so to speak, detached from life. Nothing is more practical in all of life than who is the God you will serve? Who is the God you will follow? You see, the who, the what one worships has consequences. Theology leads to discipleship. In the days of giving mere assent, to Yahweh are over. It's time for a decision. You've come to the Valley of Decision or the Mountain of Decision there at Carmel. It's time to fish or cut bait, as they say. Right? Joshua in Joshua 24. As Joshua tells the people there as he's getting ready to depart and they're getting ready to set up the establishment there in Canaan. Get rid of the gods of your fathers that they worshiped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and worship Yahweh. Choose for yourselves this day the one you will worship. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. It's time to make a decision. You see, no decision is a decision. You cannot remain ambivalent and indifferent. The decision will be made for you ultimately if you don't make it. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He goes on... you aren't with Him. You are against Him. It's a binary choice. It's a zero or a one. That's refreshing to me. I don't know about you in this day, in this malaise of gray. They have such stark options. Finally, someone speaking truth. Finally. A voice of clairvoyance. a Perspicuous voice. It's going be understood. Yahweh or Baal. Jesus Christ or the world? Jesus Christ or whatever gods there are, the plethora of gods that we have all around us. Whom will you serve? Success? Money? Power? Privilege? But notice the people Crickets! Crickets! Yes. The people didn't answer him a word. You think to yourself, why? Was it because Elijah's words were code? You know, religious speak? You know, I'm I'm not really sure. uh, What's he saying here? I'm just not really sure. I don't think so. So why the silence? I think it's partly because silence is the easiest way to remain non-committal. Those of us who are parents with multiple children know this phenomena that I speak of. When you have to address and confront your child with a problem over an issue, is not silence often their default position? You see, when you're guilty... As as there's really not a lot to say. You probably shouldn't say anything. Except maybe beat your breast, dare look to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But we're so apt to say, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week, I give all, a fourth of all I have. Look at me. Look at my righteousness. But that's not what they do. They're silent. You see, the people of Israel knew they had been anything but faithful in their covenant commitment to the Lord. They had played the harlot. Yes, they gave lip service to Yahweh. They they knew the story, the old, old story of Yahweh and His love. How Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the God who had revealed himself at the bush on fire that burned but was not consumed. I am Yahweh, your God. I am that I am. That's who you tell who sent you, Moses. They knew that story. They had the Torah. They they had the law of God. They had the ten words. The sure words. The words that had been tried in the furnace seven times and are pure that are forever established in the heavens, as the psalmist would say. They had those words. They had that redemption. But their hearts and lives were far from Yahweh. In true functional de- deity was Baal. And I thought to myself, I-, I wonder what our functional deity is. We give lip service to Yahweh. We, we say we follow Jesus. Right, kind of like a placebo, right, to help us cope. That's what the world thinks about faith. They think it's just a coping mechanism. It's a psychological phenomena by which one helps helps one to cope and get through life. There's no veracity, there's no truth, it's not anchored in reality, it's not anchored in historical facts. It's just something men made up to help us. We have daddy issues. Now Elijah is calling upon the people to make a decision. If Yahweh is God, then obviously the people must follow him. And I thought to myself, isn't it fascinating here that these people, there in the 9th century B.C. in the visible church, because this is the visible church he's speaking to, how similar they are to us. They're not unlike us. They resemble many of us and many in our culture, in our postmodern times. You see, we live in a day and age when uncertainty and skepticism are looked upon as virtuous. We're told that at best, all we can be is agnostic. You really can't know. You can't be certain. You know, you really can't know anything other than that you can't know anything. Like right, the self-contradicting propositions. I read this week there was a teacher in the public school system who was boasting that one of her main objectives in the classroom was to lead her students into the wonders of uncertainty. That's where we are. Oh, the wonders of the mystery of uncertainty. Beloved, that's the very opposite, the, the very antithesis to biblical faith. Biblical faith is seen in Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. My deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. It doesn't sound like David had a lot of uncertainty there, does it? It's pretty emphatic. Others in our culture buy into the mistake that you can have Jesus as Lord on Sunday morning in this building. Yeah, it's fine for you to have Jesus as Lord at 3000 Grove, but don't bring him into the marketplace of ideas in the neutral place. Have you heard this? Let me expose the lie right now just to be unequivocal, clear. There is no neutral place. There is none. There is no quarter from the eyes before whom we stand, our God. We will serve somebody. We will either serve the living triune God as he's revealed himself in the word of God because we're created as creatures to worship. Every man, woman, and child is a worshiper. And we will either worship the living God in spirit and in truth, or we will fabricate for ourselves, for the heart of man is an idol factory, an idol that helps us live our best life now. That we construct from our own imagination, from vain imaginations. In the words of Bob Dylan, you've got to serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan speaks more than he knows. Saints, the people of God were limping. They were hobbling, they were dancing, they're hesitating. They don't want to close the deal. They don't want to commit. What they failed to understand, though, in doing so, in hesitating, in dancing, you are committing. The decision is being made for you when you don't follow the living God. Beloved, the God of Elijah, the God of the Bible is an exclusive God, a jealous God with a holy jealousy. Right? We think of that word jealousy, all the negative, pejorative connotations. But in the Word of God, holy jealousy is a good thing. Husbands, we're to have holy jealousy for our wives. And wives, we're to have holy jealousy for our husbands. You see, the only wise and living God will not share his glory with another. He's a jealous lover. And notice how Elijah breaks the pregnant silence, right? you got to bail me out. You ever been in that predicament when someone has to speak something? Verses 22 to 24, he sets down the rules for the showdown. You see, Elijah wants to leave no doubt in the people's mind who is the true and living God. And he gives the prophets of Baal, did you notice, every advantage. They have home field. Elijah's outnumbered, 850 to 1. Vegas doesn't give Elijah very good odds. I'm not going with Elijah. I'm not putting my money on black. (laughs) Notice they're in Baal Stadium. He gives Baal the first right of refusal regarding what bull they'll use, and notice this: they don't even have to flip a coin. Sure, go ahead, take it. You go first. No, I ins- oh, I insist. You can go first. Elijah tells them in verse twenty-four: "You call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of Yahweh, the God who answers by fire. He's God." This should be a shoe in for Baal, right? It's in his stadium. His backyard, he's got the numbers. He already has the altar there. He is the, the Lord of the storm, so a little lightning shouldn't be any problem whatsoever. You know, he should be able to do that and bring some fire from heaven. Notice the people again. What, what are the people again? They're, they've been silent as a church mice up to this point, but now, notice what they say. This sounds good. This is good. It's the first thing they say. It's good. Let's get it on. Now, with everything in place, we're about to find out who is the God who answers with fire. Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Right? That's how we're going to tell. The God who answers with prayer. Don't miss that. is majestic and incredible as the story is, it has this very sublime, simple message. The God who hears the prayers of his people is the God who is. You're thinking, well, it's got to be more than that. No, that's it. If Baal answers, he's God. If Yahweh answers, he's God. Whichever God answers, that's the one you must follow. So let's look at this. Prayer answering God of the showdown in verses 26 to 40. Let's look at the prayer answering God because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's proof is in the pudding. In the pudding is the God who answers with fire. As agreed upon, Baal goes first. But notice the emptiness of, of, of Baal worship and, and false worship in general, and false religion in verses 26 to 29. We're told that after the prophets of Baal take the bull and place it on the altar, they began to call on the name of Baal in verse 26. Oh, Baal, answer us. Just this repetition. You can see it, right? They frenzy. They're up in a frenzy. They're all lathered up. They've got their respective ritual garb on, right? Because they're religious. Right? The big poofy hats and the whole thing. The whole nine yards. And to emphasize the emptiness emptiness of their calling, the writer tells us, but there was no voice. No one answered. And in verse 29, even more emphatically, we're told, there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And while the episode in many ways is comical, in the end, I, I, I help to think, I, I think myself, it's, it's so sad, though, isn't it? Right? When we look upon the masses of people who don't follow Jesus. It's like watching one of those old videos, you know, General, uh, National Geographic people in India. Just, I know some of us have been to India, and you see the masses of people and just how religious they are. It colors everything that they do, everything they follow, everything that they think, where they'll bathe, where they won't bathe, what they eat, what they don't eat. Right? It's, it's just religiosity. Just millions and millions of people perishing with, without hope, with, without God in the world. And, and we can sit here and we can laugh at the mockery that we're going to look at in just a moment. But if we step back for it, we step right back and we see God, give us your heart. Give us your heart, God. To see the masses, the people who are going to step into a Christless eternity where the worm is not quenched and the fire does not go out. Yes, that's true. It's everlasting fire. The same word that describes heaven is used to describe hell. Where the wrath of God will be meted out perfectly with holy justice on those who know not God and know not Jesus Christ. People need the Lord, right? Sparky is is, uh, is sung, people need the Lord, right? At the end of hopeless dreams, people need the Lord, right? The masses, it should drive us to weep. But this silence is telling, right? Even amidst all that's going on, the silence of God's people. And the lack of response to the prophets of Baal illustrates for us exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Oh, the folly of idolatry. If you notice how long the, the worship service was, From morning, early morning, till noon. But it was to no avail. It went on for hours. They were wasting their breath, and they were wasting their time. You see, a long prayer does not mean a better prayer. There's the application for us. You pray lengthy prayers. Well, good for you. They prayed lengthy prayers. But it doesn't matter, particularly if the God you're praying to doesn't exist is the wrong God. Better said, right? As Miles me, behind every idol, I, every idol there's demonic forces and powers. You're enslaved, people, if you don't worship Jesus Christ. You're under the domain and the reign of the kingdom of darkness, the ruler, the prince of the power, who has blinded your minds in unbelief. That's why when you hear the it's like Charlie Brown's teacher you don't hear it because you don't have ears to hear because the spirit of God has not circumcised your ears to hear it just like mine were I sat where you sat many years as a young man hearing but not listening But maybe they need something more than prayer. We're told that, and they limped. The same word in verse 21. It's the same word that's used to describe Israel. Did you notice that? That's, that's there for intention. He wants to see, see the connection. They're limping, they're hoppling, they're dancing. They're doing anything they can to gin up Baal. So Baal will answer them. We're told... And they limped around the altar that they had made, hobbling, dancing to get Baal's attention. But there was no voice and no one answered. It's all for naught. But Elijah, he's seen enough, right? He begins to mock them. Their folly, verse 27. Notice, look at 27. Cry aloud. Maybe you need, maybe you're speaking too softly. You need to yell a little bit, you know, a little more dynamic worship service. Get louder, for he's a God. Either he's musing, right? He's deep in thought. Maybe he's reading Cicero or Plato or Aristotle or, you know, one of the Sophists, right, so to speak. Perhaps he's in the men's room. Yeah, literally, that's what it's meaning. Perhaps he's in the men's room and he's occupied, and he can't get to the altar and bring the fire at this moment. He could be on a journey, or you know what? I bet you he's taking a nap. You know, he's unlike your Yahweh, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's not like that. He he needs a nap. Isn't it interesting? Now, let's just stop. Let's just step back a moment. Isn't it interesting? How, when we, com- we make these idols, they're so much like us. They, they look like us and all of our foibles and our, our failings. Like, isn't that amazing? Like Greek mythology, it's amazing how many of the gods resemble us. But Elijah's doing this to expose the utter uselessness of Baal. He, he pulls back the curtain, right? He's like Toto in The Wizard of Oz. Remember that scene with Toto? standing there with the, with the characters, the protagonist, right? Dorothy. And Toto gets away from her and goes over and starts yanking on the, the curtain. And lo and behold, behind the curtain is just an old man, crotchety man, bent over with some computer graphics and a microphone. Exposed. That's Elijah. It's to expose. Every sermon at its heart should expose the idolatry that is the human heart fallen in Adam. And place before it the glories of the living God in Jesus Christ. How how God is drawn near to sinners to save them. To rescue them from their idolatrous hearts. And define them and give them significance and purpose. But in contrast to the no-show Baal, the God of Elijah never tires, right? He's not weary. Again, though, the silence is deafening. The prophets of Baal are told, verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves, right? If you can't be loud enough, you can't do enough dancing, you start to bring out swords and you start to... yourself. People, people are still doing this today. You know this, right? You've seen those uh, Muslim Arabic funerals in the Middle East? They go around, they start hitting themselves... And then blood starts to perfuse just to try to mediate, to manipulate, somehow to appease, to propitiate Allah, the false god of Islam. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. You see, friends, false gods require your blood. The living... You see, Christ in His blood secures for us access into God's presence. Not through frantic activity, nor through ecstatic experiences, but through Christ's work we're able to commune with God. We're able to draw near in our time of need to the throne of grace with holy, humble reverence, with joy. Now, if you want to talk about something that will make your feet start to move and your heart start to sing... That should do it. You see, beloved, well, when you're serving a false god, you're always having to perform. Always trying to merit their blessing through religious activity. You're always seeking to make a deal. I wonder how many of us are making deals with God on a daily basis in our own lives. Lord, I had my quiet time today. You know, I'm an elder in the church. I'm a teaching elder at All Saints Presbyterian. trying to manipulate Him, trying to leverage our good works to get Him to answer our requests. Well, you know, I'm just outstanding. I'm all that. Right? Superstitious. Vain idolatry. Vain imaginations, right? But In contrast to the craziness and emptiness of idolatry and false worship, we see the simple... Now, not simplistic, sublime power of biblical prayer. Elijah, in verse 30, calls all the people to come near. And you think to yourself, I wonder how he said that. Did he say, come here? I don't don't think so. I think as he images his Father in heaven, whose heart breaks over the death of the wicked, does not delight in the death of the wicked, I think he's calling them almost like a disappointed father to a child. Come near. Come near. Come near, people of Yahweh. You've been limping. You've been hobbling. You've been hesitating far too long. Draw near. He draws near to them. Right? The people are gathered. And the first thing he does, notice what he does. There's no frantic activity. Notice this. You don't get the sense that there's something out of control. It's just quiet, methodical, easy. He begins to repair the altar. One stone at a time. And with each setting of the 12 stones, he's calling the people to repent. Reuben, Naphtali, Judah. Each stone Visible church to return. You are lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. Return to me, saith your God. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Once the altar's finished and the wood and the bull are placed upon it, Notice what Elijah does. He does the unthinkable. It's shocking. He says, I want you to take four jars of water and I want you to pour it over the offering. And I want you to do it three times. I want to eliminate any possibility that you have any kind of scientific magical mystical explanation for about what's to happen he's calm he doesn't raise his voice it's not the dynamic worship it's just easy quiet sublime verse 35 and the water ran around the alt and filled the trench with water and then notice the simplicity of the prayer. O Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, verses 36 to 37, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know. O Lord, you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Did the people turn their hearts back? Who turns the hearts of God's people back? God does. God turns the hearts of the people back in his mercy. In his mercy, he grants repentance to his people. The minions of Baal called upon Baal early morning to late, and there was no voice, there was no answer, and no one paid attention. But here's Elijah not yelling. There are no pyrotechnics, no manipulating God, right? Even Luther fell to that trap. 1517, in Rome, climbing stairs, thinking somehow he's going to merit God's favor. The church at one time was selling in Delta. Do that now, if I'm not mistaken. Pastor Sloan can correct me. Buying merit to secure favor in heaven. I'll climb these steps. I'll eat charred glass. I'll walk on hot coals. I'll do whatever. I'll have quiet time. I'll serve as a deacon. I'll serve as an elder. I'll sit on the front pew. I'll sit on the back pew. I'll sit in the balcony. God, I'll do it. I'll do whatever. Bartering with God. Manipulating God. Sticking carrot with God. Right, Beloved, you've done this. This is in the heart of man. I know you've done this because I've done it. The propensity of my heart to continue to do it until I'm set free, till the fetters are broken, and I'm liberated to walk in the freedom of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, this is the heart. We're all religious by nature. We're all seeking to gin up God to answer. But with clarity and simplicity, He prays to His Father in heaven. Right, Elijah's pointing forward to Jesus in Matthew 6. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't try to impress me. Will the guy beside you or the woman in front of you like the idolaters? For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. You know why you don't have to? Because he is there and he is not silent. He's real. The prophets of Baal had every advantage. Home field prayed longer, had dynamic worship, but in the end it doesn't matter. The living God was not impressed. You cannot barter nor manipulate him. Those who would worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is revealed ultimately in Jesus Christ, God's final word in these last days. He's revealed himself. So what happens? Verse 38, very simply, what happens? It's almost anticlimactic. You knew that was going to happen. Of course, what's going to happen? The fire falls. Notice what it consumes. Every stinking thing there. The bull, the stones, the water, the dust. All that's left, you can imagine, is a crater. (laughs) It's a crater that's left. And notice the people. They're no longer silent. They're no longer ambivalent. They're no longer hobbling. Uh, Right? The decision's been made manifest. The silence ceases. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The fire fell. Because the living God heard the prayer of His child his son Elijah. So let me conclude with this. Next week we'll look at the, uh, the slaughtering, right, as, as Yahweh's servant goes out and takes the sword. And the old covenant church, that's what they did. They took the sword and they slayed the enemies of God. You know what the new church does, the new covenant church? We slay our sin. We mortify it. We put it to death. Today is the day of salvation for the world doors of the ark are wide open because their story that we have here foreshadows another story of another hill and a hill called Calvary where the fire of God fell. This time on the holy Son of God who exhausted the wrath of God for sinners. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we in Him might become the righteous of God. Beloved, we live in a day when you need to stop limping Hesitating, dancing, jumping, right? All the, the metaphor, all the picture there. If the Lord, he is God, serve him. If secularism is God, then serve it. Right? Scientism, Islam, whatever religion, the plethora of gods, you serve them. But you can't serve Yahweh and these other gods. You can't. Today is the day of decision. Today is the day of salvation to all who believe. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray and ask for the grace to repent. Lord, it's not just a mental challenge, a mental game by which we can will it, because we can't even will repentance the spirit of God must effectually unite us to Jesus Christ who makes us willing and able to believe. It's all of God from beginning to end. It's all monergistic. You, Lord God, are the author, the sustainer and the finisher of our faith. We thank you that you who have begun this good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. O oh, Father, may we now, in light of that great truth, continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For that day draweth nigh, for it is you who work to will within us. Amen.